Well, this morning, I have the privilege of introducing our preacher uh, of the morning. Uh, it's a privilege to introduce uh, Daryl Johnson because Daryl and I have been not only colleagues, but uh, dear friends for almost 40 years. How did we get to be so old, Daryl? I don't quite understand that. But maybe a way to just summarize the nature of the relationship we've had over the years is a plaque that I have on my wall, if you came into my office, and on this plaque were these words that were written by Daryl so many years ago that I think really summarizes the nature of our relationship. Every man needs a friend with whom he need not justify himself so that he can be free to discover himself. Thank you for being that friend and freeing me to be me. And I would say of this man here that I have no higher regard from any other human being on this planet than the man that's going to be preaching for us today. Daryl is a pastor, a scholar, a preacher of the word, ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA. He has served Presbyterian pastorates in Ventura, California, Los Angeles, Sacramento, and Glendale. Uh, his heart for the Lord's global reach uh, took him to serve the Union Church in Manila in the Philippines for approximately four years. And Daryl and his wife Sharon, with that heart for the global uh, concerns, um, have been adopters of children. And I want you to meet Sharon, Daryl's wife. She's sitting over here with my wife. And Sharon, would you stand and would you welcome Sharon here to our church? Just as they have an international heart, they have an international family. And uh, so their oldest son, David, is a mixture of Mexican and Dutch. I had to mention the Dutch, right? Uh, They have two daughters, one who's Korean, another Filipino, and a fourth child, a son, uh, who was adopted from Russia. So a very international family. In the year 2000, Daryl left the pastorate to join the faculty at the highly regarded Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, to become a professor there of pastoral theology. Uh, With a specialty in preaching, he's been equipping preachers and pastors for the past nine years. Uh, He has a brand new book released, even right now, uh, coming out through InterVarsity Press, called The Glory of Preaching, Participating in God's Transformation of the World. And this is just one of a number of books that uh, Daryl has written. Uh, when Daryl returns to his work this fall, though, he's making a major shift, and that is she's shifting back into the pastorate, uh, leaving his primary work at, at Regent to become the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. But the most important thing that I would tell you about Daryl, and if you are with him, it would not take long for you to find this out, uh, and that is that he has a passion for Jesus Christ. He loves nothing better than telling others about him, as you will hear shortly, and holding him up for all of us to see. And with that in mind, I want us to turn to our text of Scripture for this morning, and that is in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. If you would follow along as I read, you can find that on page 1913 in your pew Bible. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit 
And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, and what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Would you join me in welcoming to our pulpit, Daryl Johnson. Go for it. Thank you. Well, thank you for that warm welcome. I trust that after I preach, I will still have it. And thank you, Dan, for inviting me to open God's word from this pulpit. I've known of the reputation of this church for a long time. And I've known of your reputation for a long time. And so this is good to actually meet you, and I can see why God is using you in the ways that I've heard He's using you. And that baptism this morning, that, that was wonderful, the way you handled that. That was a model of how to do that, so thank you. And of course, Greg, it's just so great to be with you. I, I can't believe it's 40 years. Um, but what you need to know is when we're together, I, I feel like I'm 25 again. I don't know about you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably looking 25. I don't know about you, but, <laughs> no. but it's just great to be with you. And it's so appropriate, given the life transitions that Sharon and I are going through, that we would be with you and Lily, uh, people who have been with us in other transitions. Thank you. Let us pray. Living God, we believe that you inspired the words which Greg has read for us this morning. Will you now, in your mercy and grace, help us understand these words? And more than understand, will you help us actually enter into the reality of which these words speak? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Living apocalyptically, the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus Christ is a call to live and serve apocalyptically. Yes, the call to discipleship is the call to live and serve incarnationally, to follow Jesus into the pain of the world, 
and to make the cries of our towns and cities our own cries. Yes, the call to discipleship is the call to live pneumatically, spiritually, filled with, animated by, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus breathes into us. The call to discipleship is the call to live and serve regally, kingdomly, open to and seeking first God's new world order, breaking into the world in Jesus. The call to discipleship is the call to live and serve prophetically, to stand in the presence of God and learn to see the world as He sees it, and then to speak the truth of Jesus into our towns and villages. The call to discipleship is the call to live and serve eschatologically, alert to, ready for, eager for the any moment now coming of Jesus. But in it all, the call to discipleship is the call to live and serve apocalyptically. This is the way of life. This is the way of being in and for the world the Apostle John develops for us in the last book of the Bible. The title of his book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Even as I say those words out loud this morning, my soul is stirred. The Revelation of Jesus Christ Keep that title before us, and we will then enter into the reason for which John wrote the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The title is not Revelations, although there are a series of revelations in the book. The title is not even The Revelation, although it is one sustained revelation. The title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The point being, the book is about a person of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Of in what sense? Of Jesus Christ as in by Jesus Christ, or of Jesus Christ as in about Jesus Christ? Yes, both as is often the case in the writings of John. The revelation by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. The title of the last book of the Bible is The Revelation of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. Which tells me that any interpretation of the last book of the Bible that does not lead us to the feet of Jesus is off the mark. Or to put it positively, any faithful interpretation of the last book of the Bible will always lead us to the feet of Jesus Christ where we are enthralled by and captured again by a person. Now, literally, the title is The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The opening words of the book are Apocalypsis Jesus Christu, The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. When you hear this word apocalypse or apocalyptically, what do you think? What do you feel? When you hear the word apocalypse, what do you think or feel? Now, most people in our culture hear the word apocalypse and they think, oh no, something awful is about to happen, right? And so we have these movies called Apocalypse Now or Apocalypto. We speak of strange weather patterns like multiple tornadoes or killer typhoons as having apocalyptic proportions. Or we speak of 9-11 as an apocalyptic event. 
In the first century, when people heard the word apocalypse, they didn't think in those terms. That's because the word apocalypse simply means unveiling, disclosure, opening up, breaking through from hiddenness. When people of the first century heard the word apocalypse, their response was, oh, good. Something new is going to be revealed to me. This word was used of pulling back of the curtain, lifting up of a cover, or opening of the door. The apostle Paul seemed to have really liked this word. He used it a lot. For instance, in Romans 1-7, he's speaking of the gospel that he's eager to preach in the capital of the Roman Empire. It is the power of God unto salvation, he says. Why, Paul? Why is it the power of God unto salvation? For, he says, in, in it, the righteousness of God, apocalyptetai. In the gospel, the righteousness of God breaks through. The righteousness of God is opened up. The righteousness of God is unveiled and disclosed. In the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, God pulls back the curtain, lifts the cover, opens the door on his way of writing all relationships. Paul uses this word when he speaks of his own conversion. Galatians 1.12, when God was pleased to reveal his son in me, apocalypsi, God was pleased to unveil His Son in me. God was pleased to disclose His Son in me. God was pleased to have His Son break through to me and to me and to you. So the title of the last book of the Bible is The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. The title is The Unveiling of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. The title is The Breaking Through from Hiddenness of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. No wonder the last book of the Bible is so full of hymns and songs. For what do you want to do when you experience an apocalypse of Jesus? John says, he fell at his feet as a dead man. Of course. Now, apocalyptic literature, the kind of literature that we have here in the text before us today, has two practical purposes. It, it's important to know that apocalyptic literature isn't uh, airy-fairy literature. It isn't academic literature. It's very practical pastoral leadership. And it has two basic practical purposes. Keep these purposes before us, and we will not go astray as we read the rest of the book. Indeed, keep these purposes before us, and discipleship and ministry will take on fresh vigor and joy. The first practical purpose is this, to set the present moment in all of its ambiguity and uncertainty and messiness, to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. Say that again. The first practical purpose is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. Because if you can see the future, if only for a moment, you see the present differently. In fact, you can live the present differently if you can see the future, if just for a moment. The future is Jesus is coming and he's bringing with him a whole new heaven and earth. So the first practical purpose, set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. The second practical purpose is more important. It is to set the present moment in all of its ambiguity and messiness, to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. Let me say that again. 
to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. Things are not as they seem. It's the fundamental apocalyptic conviction. Or as I should put it, things are not only as they seem. There's more to reality than we can know with our unaided intellect and emotions and imagination. And apocalyptic literature seeks to open up that more, to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. And it turns out that the greatest unseen reality of the present is a person. The greatest unseen reality of the present is the incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, and coming Jesus of Nazareth. Do you believe this? The Apostle John would tell us that unless we do, we will not understand the present moment rightly. The year was 96 AD. The Apostle John was on the island of Patmos, which is an island just off the land mass we now know as Turkey. Patmos was a prison island, the place to which the Roman government would send troublemakers, criminals, political troublemakers. Now, why was John, the apostle of love, as he was called, on Patmos? What was his crime? What did John deserve, do to deserve the title political troublemaker? Well, you might know that the emperor at that time was a man named Domitian. Domitian was a profoundly insecure man, as many emperors are. And to compensate for his insecurity, he commanded that all Roman citizens were to worship him. And they were to worship him as Domini et Deus, as Lord and God. All Roman citizens were to go to these temples dedicated to the worship of the emperor. They were to take a a pinch of incense, throw it on the fire altar, and say the words, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. They could believe just about anything else they wanted to as long as they would say the words that embodied the spirit of the empire. Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. Now, John in his mid-80s is not about to bow his knee to a mere mortal who is usurping the place that only the living God can occupy. So John, graciously, I think, refuses to abide by the Domitian's edict. He is, therefore, from the perspective of the state, an atheist. Because he's not believing in the idolatry of the empire. Since the worship of the emperor was the glue that held the empire together, John's gentle refusal threatened the unity of the empire. John has to be dealt with. He's sent to Patmos, where, in the words of Thomas Torrance, he is left to bleach and rot on the rocks. A personal crisis, no doubt. I can imagine John saying sometime along the way, so this is what happens to disciples who love you in their old age? An ecclesiastical crisis, no doubt, because John had become a sort of bishop to all the other pastors of the churches of Asia Minor on Turkey. And there is the bishop on a prison island, abandoned and alone. And a theological crisis, calling into question the very foundation of the gospel for which John had lived and which he preached all of those years causing great apprehension, if not outright fear, in the churches of Asia Minor that John loved. 
if Jesus is Lord, Jesus Kurios, as the common creed said of all the churches, if Jesus is Lord, can he not take better care of his disciples? Can he not take better care of his pastors and his churches? Ever faced such a theologically unnerving crisis in your life? I was on the island called Patmos. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, says John. That's where you want to be on the Lord's Day, by the way, in the Spirit. And the Spirit, he says, was enabling him to worship, empowering him to worship in those crummy circumstances, in those theological crisis-producing circumstances. I heard a voice behind me, a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet. Like a trumpet. Now, this is not just flowery language. Those who were steeped in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as John was, would have immediately recognized what happened. Because in the Old Testament, trumpets do what? Those of you who know the Old Testament well, what do trumpets do? Trumpets call people to battle, and trumpets announce the presence of God. Trumpets announce the presence of God and call people to worship. On Patmos? In a prison? John says he turned to see the voice. See a voice? How do you see a voice? And when he turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. Again, those steeped in the Bible and the Old Testament, as John was, would immediately recognize what is happening. Because just outside the Holy of Holies, along the south wall was a seven-branched lampstand. On the lampstand were placed seven oil-burning lamps, which the priest, in a robe dressed to his feet, was to keep burning. Do you see what's going on? John is discovering that that miserable rock pile is the sanctuary of a holy God. In the Spirit, on Patmos, he receives an apocalypse and discovers that even a prison can be a sanctuary Set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. I saw in the middle of the lampstands one like a son of man. John would later learn that the lampstands represent these seven churches that he loves. In the middle, the risen, ascended son of man is there on Patmos, but he's also in the middle of the churches back in Asia Minor. Not above the churches looking down, not outside the churches looking in, but in the middle. The Lord of history, the glorified son of man, the one to whom all Caesars must one day bow their knee, is in the middle of the churches, in the middle of our churches, in the middle of this gathering. Do you believe this? John would tell us that unless we do, we will not understand this present moment. Now, let me call your attention to just three major features of the opening apocalypse of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Three major features. The first is voice. It turns out that the voice is the dominant image of this opening chapter of the book. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice behind me. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice. Verse 18, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Voice. I think this is the risen, ascended Jesus way of saying that the discipline of discipleship and ministry is listening. 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 
As you discover when you read chapters 2 and 3 of the revelation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus dictates seven messages to the seven churches, all those messages have the same exhortation. They all have the same one, and it is here. Here, what Jesus, through the Spirit, is saying to the churches. Voice. Listen. Linger with me here for a few moments, and here I want to do something a little technical. The centrality of the voice in this apocalypse is brought out in the way that John describes the apocalypse of Jesus that day on Patmos. John employs a literary device very common to first century writing and, interestingly, very common to first century Middle Eastern communication. Scholars have a word for this device, and it is the word chiasm. Chiasm comes uh, from the Greek letter chi, which is similar to our English letter X. But scholars use this word chiasm to describe only one side of the X, the kind of uh, sideways V. Stay with me. We Westerners tend to think in a linear way. We write and read in a linear way, right? We read our books, we read newspaper articles in a linear way. Middle Easterners tend to think in this chiastic way. They write and they read in a sideways V. So, for instance, we're not supposed to think, as Westerners do, that we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in a line. Rather, the way it works is you have one, then you drop down a line, indent to the right, two, drop down a line, indent to the right, three, finally you get to four. You drop down, and and then you indent, and you go to the left. Drop down, you go to the left again, drop down, and you finally go to the left. Now, the point then of a paragraph or a piece of writing, the point is not found at the end. The point is found in the pivot. The point is not found in the seventh sentence. The point is found in the fourth sentence. Now, much of Scripture is put together this way. If we had time, I'd love to show you. Uh, The book of Romans is put together this way. The book of Hebrews, uh, Luke, uh, and the revelation of Jesus Christ is put together this way. So it's written this way, and we need to learn to read it this way. Uh, By the way, I'm hoping that President Obama has on his advisory team someone who understands the Middle Eastern way of communicating so that we can make sure that the president is hearing and we're hearing what the leaders of the Middle Eastern nations are saying to us. It's in a different form of communication. Um, I'm sure this isn't something you do for bedtime reading, but read the speeches of the president of Iran. (laughs) They're consistently chiastic. His point is not at the end of his speech. By the end of the speech, it's a diatribe. The point is in the middle, and the press is not reading his speeches correctly. I see a couple of people starting to talk about that, like you want to pull out the speeches and look at them. Don't, don't do that. Let's go back to Revelation 1. Back to the voice. So we're not supposed to read the document in a straight line. Uh, it starts with, um, what does it start with? Head, and then eyes, and then feet, voice, um, hand, mouth, face, I mean, isn't that kind of weird order anyway? Rather, it's like this. Head, eyes, 
feet, then voice, then hand, mouth, and face. So the way you read a chiasm is you read it crosswise. You read numbers one and, two, one and seven together, head and face, number two and six together, eyes and mouth, number three and five together, feet and hand. And isn't that a more natural way to read it anyway? And finally then, you get to the voice. Now, Eugene Peterson helps us here the most from his book, Reverse Thunder. Peterson suggests that head and face go together because they are the parts of the body that make the first and last impression. Jesus' head, white like wool, like snow, telling us that the one who is in our midst has been around a long time and that he's immensely wise. His face shining with all the brightness of the noonday sun, telling us that he radiates the glory of God. uh, Eyes and mouth go together, as Peterson says, because they are the organs of relationship. Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire, meaning that he is very, when he looks at us, it's very penetrating. He's pure and purifying. When Jesus Christ looks at us, he does so to purify us. His mouth has a sharp two-edged sword. The image suggests that he comes up really close to us and he comes to do battle with our minds because he wants to speak the truth into our minds so we can be free. Feet and hands go together, Peterson said, because they're the part of the body that represents capability. The feet of Jesus are like burnished bronze. The one in our midst is strong and steady. He's not going to change in the midst of all the changes around us. His hand has, in his right hand, he has um, seven stars. The seven stars turn out to be the messengers of the seven churches, but the seven stars in the first century would be the seven planets people thought ruled the world. This imagery suggesting that Jesus Christ holds all the cosmic and earthly forces people think rule the world. He's got the whole world in his hands. All of that to now lead to the voice to help us understand the inherent authority of the voice of this person. Like many waters, says John, able to drown out all the other voices that are claiming allegiance for Jesus' disciples. Again, the whole point is listen. The essential discipline of discipleship is listen. Listen. Listen to me. Listen to the one who holds it all together. Now, the implication being from this text is that the churches in Asia Minor were not listening to Jesus. They were listening to other voices, Understandably so. They were listening to the threatening voice of Domitian, to the seductive voice of the empire. They were listening to the voices that promised comfort and security through wealth and power. They were listening to the voices that said you can serve Jesus Christ and the idols of a culture at the same time. Listen to me, he says. The second major feature of this apocalypse to which I call your attention, the voice speaks. Francis Schaeffer used to say he is there and he's not silent. The voice speaks, and he speaks two commands. Two commands. These commands turn out to be the two great commands of the last book of the Bible. The last two great commands Jesus Christ has given us. They are, do not be afraid and look. Do not be afraid. Look. Do not be afraid. Look, it turns out that we, owe the, we obey the first by obeying the second. That is, we stop being afraid when we look. 
This tells me that whenever I experience fear, which is often, it's because I'm not looking. Oh, I am looking. It's just that I'm looking in the wrong direction. I'm looking at all the sociological factors, at all the political factors, at all the economic factors. I'm looking at the rise of militant Islam. I'm looking at the collapse of the moral order. I'm looking at the spread of internet pornography, but not at Jesus. Not at the risen and ascended Jesus. Look, he says, look at me. I've got the keys of death and Hades. I'm the only one who's got the keys. I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. Do not be afraid. Look. And then the third feature of this apocalypse to which I call your attention. In the middle. The voice speaks from the middle. Not from above. Not from outside. But from the middle. Yes, from the middle of the churches. But as you read the rest of the revelation of Jesus Christ, you discover that he speaks from the middle of everything. Revelation chapter 5, the lion has triumphed. I turn to see the lion and I see a lamb standing in the middle of the throne. Revelation 5, 6, standing in the middle of the throne, which means the lamb has to be standing in the middle of the almighty who is on the throne. The voice speaks from the very middle of everything. Do you believe this? That the risen, ascended Jesus speaks from the middle, from the center of everything, that he is the center? If I'm reading the Christian landscape correctly, especially in the Western world, many, if not most, disciples and pastors are feeling marginalized, right? marginalized vis-a-vis the culture, marginalized vis-a-vis the great forces of our time. Understandably so. The surrounding culture, for the most part, doesn't even care that the disciples of Jesus are around. How often does the church get any press on the radar screen of our culture? Boy, come and live in Canada. It's gone. There's no reference to the church in the public arena. But as I see it, the crisis is not that the church is marginalized. The crisis is that the church feels marginalized. Let me say that again. The crisis is not that we might be marginalized. The crisis is that we feel marginalized. Because you only feel marginalized if you feel you're not in the center. Right? Should I say that again to make that's a key point? You only feel marginalized if you do not, if you feel you're not in the center. So, for instance, the church can feel marginalized relative to Hollywood because we think or feel that we don't belong in the center that is Hollywood. Or we feel marginalized by Washington, for example, by Congress or the White House because we think we're being left out of the center that is Washington. Things are not as they seem. <laughs> Hollywood is not the center. Washington, D.C. is not the center. Wall Street's not the center. The center is a person. The center of everything is a person. And what is not in sync with him is on the margins. What does not honor his ways, what does not work in his ways is on the margins. We disciples are feeling marginalized because we've given into the illusion and we're measuring our lives by false sinners. Listen, look in the middle. 
The risen and ascended Jesus speaks from the middle. I hear in this text Jesus saying to me and to the church, you get discouraged because you get disoriented. And you get disoriented because you get distracted. You think that in order to do ministry in our time, you need something more attractive than me, Jesus is saying. You need something more concrete than me, something more marketable than me, something more believable than me. Live apocalyptically, serve apocalyptically, see the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future, but see the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. I am, I am the great unseen reality of the present. Look at me, listen to me.